One of the issues that we pay attention to in this podcast series is fighting biodiversity loss and the loss of nature. And we have entered the sixth mass extinction event on this planet and species are going extinct at up to 10,000 times pre-human levels. And to help conservation efforts, it's essential to get the right information, knowing where and which endangered animals are gives us a tool to keep them safe from poachers or other harm that can be done to them. And today, we therefore have a very special guest in the Planet podcast, Zoe Jewell, and she is one of the two co-founders of WildTrack. So welcome, Zoe. Thanks so much to take the time to join us. Thanks so much, Alex. I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's great that you can join. And so when I learned about your work that, that combines, on the one hand, the newest data analytical techniques and, and artificial intelligence with, on the other hand, centuries-old traditional ecolog ecological knowledge of indigenous people, I thought that is so fascinating to combine uh, the, the two opposite ends of, of the spectrum of, of, of knowledge, ancient knowledge and, and, and the latest knowledge uh, that I really wanted you to join in our podcast. So I'm very happy that you're here uh, today uh, to talk about uh, your work at, at WildTrack and all kinds of other issues that may come up related to it. So perhaps we should start at the beginning. Uh, WildTrack is all about tracking wildlife, as, as, as the word says. Uh, but that's been going on for a very, very long time. We were tracking wildlife in the time that we were probably hunting the, the woolen mammoth, I suppose. So so what triggered you to, to look for a new approach? Well, it's a long story. I guess it's quite an interesting one. So I'll, I'll offer a little bit of background about that. Um, some 20, 25 years ago, um, we were invited to take a complete deviation from our career paths. I was a veterinarian and my husband and co-founder Wildtrack Sky Alibi was a, a, cons a professional conservation biologist. Um, but we, he was working in the UK. We were both there and uh, we had an opportunity to go and monitor black rhino in Zimbabwe, the invitation of the Zimbabwean government. And it was supposed to be a one year sabbatical. Um, so off we went thinking, this is great. We'll have a, a change of scenery and do something uh, different. Um, and we spent 10 years, in fact, um, tracking these rhino every day. Um, to try and find out um, whether the efforts that were being put in place by the Zimbabwean government to protect them, which were primarily radio collaring, to find out whether those efforts were paying off. Um, so we went out every day into the field, hiking for miles and miles in the baking heat um, with our radio transmitter devices to try and pick up the bleeps that were coming from these rhino. Um, one of the good things that came out of that was that I stopped being short-sighted and became very long-sighted because it was imperative to be able to see those rhino before they saw us. Um, but one of the interesting things was that we, you know, collected these data for 10 years and we found that, in fact, instead of helping um, the rhino, the constant immobilization and darting and chasing that was necessary to keep those collars in place was actually reducing female fertility. Um, now, obviously, if you've got an endangered species like the, the black rhino, the last thing you want to do is to reduce their fertility. Instead of having calves once every two or three years, they were having calves once every 10 years. So that was obviously a disaster. Um, so, you know, we were kind of novices out there. We thought, well, what else can we do? You know, everybody was doing collaring and, and apart from literally going and finding them all every day and counting them. 
um, it was going to be challenging. Um, but one of the things that happened to us in that process was that we went out every day with these amazing indigenous trackers. Um, primarily, they would come along to protect us. They would carry a gun because obviously there were lions, other big cats that we used to have to walk past. Um, so they were there primarily for our security. But as we got to know them, they used to, you know, point out footprints to us and they would sometimes laugh at us and say, why are you, you know, waving this thing around in the air to find the rhino when all that you need is on the ground in front of you? You know, and we initially thought, oh, you know, it's some kind of, you know, folklore. And But the more we listened to them and the more we understood what they were trying to show us, the more we realized that they actually, you know, they were able to decode these signs on the ground. Um, and we began to think, hey, maybe if we could even take some elements of this, it would be a much better way to find these rhino, know how they're doing, um, and, and be able to monitor and protect them. So that was kind of, we came full circle, I guess, from being scientists back to saying, wait, there's something we're missing here, right? Which hasn't been acknowledged by science. Yeah. And it's, uh, so I, I wonder, um, what do they see on, on a track? Because if I see whatever, let's say footsteps on a beach, they all look the same. I can see some are big and some are small, but that's about where my knowledge stops. So, so what what do they can they obviously they can see the difference between a wild cat and a rhino? I suppose I guess that's about as far as I could get. But what what more can they tell you? Well, this was part of our challenge was to try to understand what it was that they were seeing, right? So they would be able to say to us. Not only this is a rhino, which, as you say, you know, most people can figure that out after a while because there's nothing else that looks like a rhino footprint. But they would be able to say this is this particular rhino and this and it's it's this sex and it's, you know, about this age. And when it was walking through here, it was eating on this bush and then it's at that bush. And then it wandered over there and lay down for a while. And then it went off and it was with this animal and this other animal. And they were on their way to X, Y, Z. And so a whole story would unfold just from them being able to observe these footprints. Um, and so, you know, naturally, as scientists, we said, well, first of all, we were skeptical. Then we started knowing that they were right because we would follow those tracks to the rhino and be able to validate what they'd said. Um, but we started thinking, you know, what is it that they're seeing? And that was the really challenging part. Um, and we would talk to them and say, what is it? You know, what, how do you know it's this rhino and not the other rhino? Um, and it would be something that they would find very, very difficult to explain. Um, and so, you know, we came to the conclusion that this this science, this ancient, um, you know, ability to decode footprints and signs on the ground isn't something that's been written down over generations. And it's not something that's been developed in a mathematical equation over generations. It is passed down by experience from one tracker to another being out there. You know, it's like the origin of science in a way. I mean, being able to follow a trail of footprints to say, you know, I'm making an observation. From that observation, I'm going to make a deduction. And then I'm going to follow the footprint and find out whether my deduction was right. And if it's wrong, then I need to adjust that. Right. And, and then I slightly change my theory. So there's this constant process, which is classical science, really. Um, and yet as scientists, we we consider it, you know, oh, it's it's just, you know, tradition. It's not 
serious science. So, so you know, our challenge was, okay, how do we extract elements of that technique and make them accessible to modern day scientists who don't know a rhino footprint from a cheetah footprint, for example? Yeah. So, but, but when you, at a certain moment, the, the two of you were convinced, but then there's the rest of the scientific community. <laughs> They've invested in those colors and those uh, GPS techniques, uh, etc. And they probably build a career on it. And then suddenly right. the two of you come with a story right. like, you do it all wrong, we should do it differently. What happened then? Well, it is, you know, that was a challenge. And I think it's it's true of anybody who goes beyond the conventional boundaries in science. I mean, scientists are actually a very, con very conservative bunch. Um, you know, and as you say, when you're invested in a technique, you don't want to um, you know, think that that investment might not have been, you know, perhaps the best or that something has superseded it. So we did have a lot of difficulty persuading people that it was a valid technique. We weren't at any point saying, hey, you shouldn't um, use these other techniques, which sometimes are valuable in, you know, certain circumstances. But um, we did say, hey, you know, we should try using footprints. But there were so many cultural and scientific obstacles to overcome um, We even had difficulty. We had difficulty publishing our work. We had death threats from some quarters. I would say, if you pursue this, you know, you're going to disappear over a cliff in the middle of the night, which sometimes did happen to other people. So we oh could take God. that seriously. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, it was it was challenging. And we, we did sometimes feel like just giving up and, and you know, towing the, towing the straight and narrow. But, um, you know, I'm glad now that we didn't. And I think scientific community has changed and there are communities of trackers all over the world now you know beginning to see the value of tracks and and decoding that ground evidence um but it's been a slow and painful process yes <laughs> i can imagine talk about dangers wasn't it dangerous to walk around uh with all those rhinos well you said you had those those local people with guns to protect you you were never attacked by them or how, how how's life out there i'm a city boy asking this <laughs> It, you know, it was dangerous. Rhino are, um, you know, they're very short sighted, um, but they're astonishingly agile um, and they don't like being disturbed. And their main line of defense is to just um, detect movement. They don't really see what's coming at them. But if they sense something different, if they feel the wind coming towards them, they sense something different. They can spin around and they'll basically just charge. I mean, that's their main line of defense charge towards you. So we did have a few occasions where we were. Um, you know, having to make a quick escape up a thorn tree or behind a bush, um, uh, particularly with 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 animals with calves, um, you know, mothers that were very protective of their calves. But I think in a way that, um, you know, reinforced in us the need to look for non-invasive methods of monitoring that weren't going to disturb these animals, um, you know, that, that would um, enable us to, to be able to count them, find out where they were going without having to catch up with them and actually see them because every time it was a nerve-wracking experience right um and and so you know the less of that you do the better and now you know like 20 25 years later with the pandemic that we've just experienced you realize again there's another reason for not getting too close to animals right we don't want to give them our um you know viruses we don't want them to give us theirs um you know it's better that we give wildlife its its space Yeah, yeah. Wow, amazing. By the way, I get a warning. You and I are seeing each other on Zoom and the others can't. And somehow Zoom has changed their um, uh, their, uh, their their billing structure, I suppose. They're warning us that we're soon not seeing each other on Zoom, Zoom anymore. But that's no problem. We can just keep uh, keep talking. 
Um, and uh, yeah, this is this is amazing. So now that you, when you came with this new technique and you had convinced the others that you could you could do it, we we will soon talk about what the technique specifically is. But I wonder, did it did it work in? I mean, ultimately, your aim was uh, conservation of of rhinos. Did did the numbers go up? Did the fertility go up? Did it go back to every three years or so instead of every ten years? We never had had the opportunity to follow that population long enough because round about the time we left Zimbabwe, unfortunately, there was a major upsurge in poaching. Um, and this happened two or three times over the period that we were there. Um, so, you know, conservation biology is very much um, about politics as well as science. And if we, we do our best as conservationists to provide the science that will help protect these animals, but ultimately, um, you know, stability within the host country is the most important factor. Um, and that's one of the reasons we work very closely with governments when we work in, in, in other countries, you know, to try to make sure that those things move along together. Um, but I'm sure, I'm quite sure that without being immobilized regularly, fertility will go up. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, of course. Well, Switz, uh, Zimbabwe went from the Switzerland of Africa to, to right. the hell of Africa. So that was right. an absolute right. disaster, of right. course, what took place there. Former right. diplomat speaking here, and I followed all that. And uh, so once you were there that you uh, you were at the stage of saying, okay, we should get rid of these colors. We should just focus m much more on, on, on the tracking, etc. Um, where did you go? How how did you? Uh, what were your next steps? How did you? Um, what what techniques did you use to um, uh, to get there? Well, we started obviously with the footprints on the ground. We thought there's data in these footprints. We need to know how to be able to extract it. So we started thinking, how do we do this? You know, we don't have that innate tracking ability that these expert indigenous trackers have. Um, what can we do? So we spent a whole summer. Um, and I remember this very well, on our hands and knees in the dirt, tracing rhino footprints onto acetate sheets, thinking maybe if we can get some tracings, we could take some measurements from the tracings and maybe that would work. Um, so that was a, a horrible summer. You know, we had dust. We were, I was constantly worried that something was going to come up behind me and attack me while I was doing, while I was staring at the tracing. Um, and, and it didn't, it just didn't work. So we said, okay, now what? Why don't we try taking images of the footprints right and then we put the images on the computer and we can take measurements that way um, so that that sounded easy but it, this was going back a bit and we didn't have scanners um, uh, even so then we finally we acquired a scanner and it was like okay we can do it and then we got digital cameras and wow you know the technology is really moving now so we were able to actually get those footprints onto the computer um, and we started then thinking, OK, now we've got all these data in front of us. You know, we picked them up from the ground. We've got them on the computer. What do we do now? Um, we needed some statistical software to be able to kind of extract metrics from those footprints um, quickly and easily. Um, and it's a funny story, I guess. We were out there in, in the bush in the middle of nowhere, um, you know, Wangi, a remote part of Wangi National Park in northwest Zimbabwe. Um, and we used to get our mail delivered, um, you know, once a week by an old truck that came up. And, 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 you know, and one of the things that we used to get was a magazine um, called Mac User. Um, and, and one week there was a there was a, a little um, a, a sort of a feature in Mac User about statistical software. 
Um, and uh, I am not a statistician. I knew nothing about statistics, really. But I looked at this article and I saw that there was this uh, software called um, Jump being featured. And, and it had won a, a really good um, review. And I said to this guy, well, you know, we should try this. It looks great. And it was talking about data visualization, which was exactly what we wanted. We wanted to somehow kind of, um, uh, I guess, re reinvent that thing that the trackers we see on the ground with with metrics and, and, and be able to see it with with those measurements. So so anyway, after a bit of a discussion, you know, we sent off for a copy of this software and um, that really changed everything for us, I think, because we were previously using software that, you know, it just we would take measurements, we would put them in, but we couldn't see any patterns. Now, with Jump, um, because it's so amazing at doing data visualization, you know, we, we, we were able to take measurements from the footprint, put them into a data table, and then from that data table create visualizations that would allow us to actually play with those data and see how things were changing. Um, and really in a process of almost experimentation with this data visualization, we developed a platform that would allow us to identify species, individual sex and age class um, simply by taking measurements from those footprints. Um, and of course, we had to have quite a lot of footprints, as you always do, to have a data set, to have a good sort of data set that covers all the variation. Um, so we were out there every day collecting footprints, um, getting the data we needed. Um, but in the end, I think we were able to really kind of recreate almost some elements of the mind's eye of those trackers. Um, you know, we had the ability to to define some of those parameters. Um, nothing like as as well as the trackers can. Trackers are amazing. They can tell you who ate what and where they went and why. And all. We can't do all that stuff. But we had enough to be able to tell us, OK, we can go into the field, pick up footprints, and we can tell you how many animals were there from those footprints. And we can tell you their sex and their age class sometimes. Um, and we can differentiate similar species, um, you know, that live in the same area. And so we were beginning to see, OK, you know, we have a technique now that's usable in the field that can help us define what we want, which is the base level data on numbers and distribution. And that informs everything in conservation biology. Um, you know, if you don't know what you've got and where it is, you can't begin to protect it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, it's an amazing story. Yeah, so so Jump is this statistical discovery software that 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 scientists and engineers use for. Um, I, I I remember reading about it in malaria research and 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 COVID and other conservation. This this I also heard about it in otter conservation. Is is that uh, is is that something you're involved in as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's one of our projects. Um, one of the challenges we've had with otter, otters, which are, you know, to use a, a pun, slippery little characters, is uh, getting hold of their footprints. Um, you know, they tend to hang out in mud and they slide around and they don't always leave very clear footprints. So we've been working um, quite hard with um, a colleague in Germany. Um, a student at KIT who has really um, dedicated a lot of time to this. And we're now able to identify four different sympatric species of otters. In other words, four different species that live in the same area um, in Asia. 
and um, using um, FIT in JUMP, we can tell which species is which, which is a huge advantage for conservation biologists there who were just seeing prints and saying, it's an otter, but we don't know which one. Um, and, and three of them are quite endangered. Three of these species are quite endangered. One is not so much. Um, so it was very important to know which species was which and, and where they were going. Um, and we now, we now have a, a project out there. In fact, one of our um, wild track specialist group um, co-founders, Larissa Slaney, is actually out there this week. Um, in Asia, and she sent me a picture of herself thigh deep in mud on a riverbank, um, looking for looking for footprints. Um, so great dedication! Wow, wonderful! Uh, you mentioned uh, fit, uh, so that is uh, footprint identification technique, right? That is what it stands for. Yes, it, fo footprint identification technology. Um, actually, it, because there are two components now. One is um, the uh, morphometrics in in jump, which I've just described. And the other is a kind of baseline layer using artificial intelligence. Um, and so we've been working for the last couple of years with colleagues at um, University College London and um, Harvard and UC Berkeley um, to develop an AI pipeline. Now, the great thing about artificial intelligence is that it's, it's not actually very intelligent. But what it will do is it'll take a vast amount of data um, image data and it'll teach itself um, or you can help train it how to identify those um, footprints at whichever level level you like um, from from those data. Um, so it, it allows us, the artificial intelligence platform allows us to kind of act as a filter for large volumes of data. Um, and then Jump, which kind of sits on top of it, um, is able to do a kind of higher resolution imaging um, for specific um, classifications like individual um, sex, age, class. So it's like a, like a two-stage process, um, the footprint identification technology. Yeah, wow. It reminds me a bit on when I want to start up my iPhone that I have to look into my iPhone and that it recognizes me and then uh, allows me to open the phone. I always wonder if... Somebody has a picture of me and shows the picture to the phone if they can then also open the phone because probably there are different techniques there that they use. But <laughs> it's, it's amazing yeah. how, how all this is developing. It is, yeah. it is really interesting. But I think that what um, one of the big challenges we've had with footprints is that footprints are a bit different from facial recognition or fingerprinting or, you know, even identifying dogs and cats because... The thing that we're interested in, the footprint and the background that it sits on, are effectively the same substrate. They look the same. Um, so, um, you know, uh, computer vision techniques have a hard time being able to pick out where in the image the footprint is, right? Even doing that is quite a challenge. Um, so we, you know, we've had to, uh, the teams that we've worked with have done a fantastic job, actually, being able to get any kind of identification, I think, with artificial intelligence. But, you know, it's not artificial intelligence. A, it's not really artificial. I mean, it's a human construct and, and, and you know, it's based on firm computer science and, and it's not terribly intelligent. It's only as intelligent as the data that you give it. Um, so it is amazing what it can do, but it's also amazing how easy it is to throw it off. Um, yeah. I think it was it was Google that said if you turn a dog a dog picture upside down, you know, can't identify it, um, yeah. you know, or some, something like that. So it has been quite a challenge for us. 
Yeah, wow. So uh, where, you you started with rhinos. We we spoke about otters, but um, I used on on uh, on Twitter to announce this podcast a picture of tigers because I know you work with tigers in Nepal as well, um, mm -hmm. uh, which also sounds pretty dangerous to me, by the way. Um, so so how many of these projects have you have you you're all over the world? I think is is that correct? We are. Um, you know, we actually um, diversified from just starting with rhino. We now have more than, I think, 37 or 38 species projects over five continents. Wow. Um, you know, and we have a huge range of um, conditions that we work in as well, you know, from minus 40 centigrade with the Amur tiger up in northeast China to probably, you know, plus 40 with the rhinos. We work, as you say, with tigers in Nepal. Um, you know, we've we've. I think one of the one of the other challenges we've had with the whole process is, you know, finding out how to make this work across different ecosystems, different substrates, different local resources. Um, but that's what conservation biology is about. You know, biology is such a, um, you know, a diverse field. Every single yeah. ecosystem has different conditions. And so you really do need a technique that's that's flexible, it's adaptable across different places. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably also a diversity in the kind of projects you're doing. So I suppose the rhinos is, is first and foremost against poaching, whereas you also have in other places threatened habitats or um or or maybe that's that's agriculture gets in the way of of the space of animals and those kind of problems are are there do you see like different categories of what you're working on yeah i think that's that's very true um you know when we started off our our objective was simply to deliver um information about numbers and distribution of these endangered species but more and more we find that the projects we're working with are very focused on um, specific conservation applications like anti-poaching, which we do with our rhino projects, or human-wildlife conflict, um, where we work with human uh, with um, lions and leopards in Botswana, which are you know a problem for livestock, or cheetahs in Namibia, which again go after human livestock. Um, you know, and and now even looking at areas like environmental impact surveys, um, we're beginning to start working with people doing those um, to. Um, find out what sort of biodiversity is in an area before, during and after a, a development, a building development. Um, yeah. one, of, one of the interesting applications there is actually looking at um, monitoring mice, small mammals, um, using track plates. So these are little plates that you can put down in the environment. They can be metal plates or wooden plates with like a little sticky surface or a sooted surface. And when a mouse runs over it, it leaves footprints. Uh, so you don't have to worry about, you know, is, is the mouse going to leave a nice footprint on the sand? It's the track plates give you these perfect footprints. Um, and so you can then figure out, OK, how many mice species have I got in this area? And that is an indicator. It's like an index of the total biodiversity of other species in the area. So you can use that to do environmental impact surveys. You know, and they're all footprint based. So, you know, we're working with a project in California looking at the recovery of a little a little mustelid um, called the fisher. It's like a little kind of, um, I guess it's almost like a cross between a mink and a stoat and a wolverine, something a little smaller. But these little animals are impacted by fire um, in the in California, and, and they're one of the first to go and they're one of the first to come back. 
Um, so monitoring them is, you know, a very um, a, good, a good way to assess environmental recovery. Um, yeah. So so there's tons of stuff you can do with footprints. Yeah. And will you stay with footprints? Because I can also imagine, let's say, whatever, uh, take an animal like uh, like butterflies that have different coloring on their wings or something. That That must be a bit the same kind of principle as footprints. So once you have this technique developed, are you, will you... Will you focus on other things as footprints as well? Are there ideas about that for the future or are you already doing it maybe? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, the the whole um, kind of um, the whole um, idea of footprints is really that they're, they're biometric. Um, in other words, they are um, uh, a sort of signal that you can take from nature, a pattern that you can identify. Um, we're already doing some work with box turtles, um, which are these little turtles that go up and down the U.S. eastern seaboard. Um, and they have these beautiful, unique shell patterns. Um, so we can use um, FIT and jump to identify those little shell patterns. Um, we're starting we're starting to work um, through our WildTrack specialist group. Um, members with acoustics, with environmental DNA, um, with various different um, coat patterns that you can get from camera traps. I mean, there are tons of biometrics out there. Um, and, and they all inform us about where animals are, what they're doing, who they're with. Um, they're truly a kind of, you know, conservation from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of uh, speaking as a Dutchman, we have these Dutch cows in the field that are, you know, white with those uh, black uh, uh, black spots on them. And uh, typical, I think you call them Frisian cows. That's and right. A couple, of, a couple of years ago, the Dutch government said, I think about 10 years ago now, they said that each and every cow in the Netherlands needs their own number. And they they get a, a, a big yellow plastic thing uh, being attached to their right ear. Uh, which which looks awful. Um, they're they're treated awfully anyway. Uh, but uh, at least young ones that are in their first half year out out in the field, they enjoy a bit of nature. And then then it it looks so artificial with the big yellow plastic thing in their ear. And I I would say with with this kind of technology, you could easily mm -hmm. because they have like fingerprints. They all have a different pattern. So mm -hmm. you could easily use this kind of technique to um, to classify them and to number them without. Um, without putting in those those awful ear things, so that's just just one idea. I can think of thousands of other ones. When, when I'm, I'm I'm looking at the audience, I'm I'm happy to see that uh, Stephen uh, Ramage is uh, joining us again. Um, I have no idea, Stephen. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm mentioning uh, Stephen of all the audience that I can see because Stephen joined our show. I don't know about two months ago now. Um, because his field is somewhat similar to what you are working on, where whereas you are working on individuals and individual species on the ground, uh, Stephen works on the other end of the spectrum, being uh, really far up. So he uses all kinds of geospatial data from satellites, etc. And Geo in Geneva is processing all that. So um, I, I can imagine maybe maybe Stephen will have recognized something here or will have comments. And that's actually for all of you, if you have comments or questions, you can just uh, raise your hands by uh, pushing that uh, uh, that uh, call in button, what uh, what the app is, uh, is named after. Um, in, in the meantime, I was wondering, you, you mentioned such 
exotic uh, places is um, what is the most dangerous carry experience that you ever had in all your work in these what is it past 20 years or so <laughs> well we've had a few um, you know and as uh, Tracker once said to me you know I've been out they're looking for mountain lions for 20 years and I've never seen one, but I know they're watching me. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I guess, you know, it doesn't do to dwell on it for too long. But I think probably, you know, I think the most risks we took were right at the beginning working with Rhino. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's exciting, you know, to be charged by a rhino and it's scary and you feel great afterwards that you're still alive and all that stuff. But I think it, I, I think it did it did kind of um, cement in our minds that it wasn't good for the animals to be doing that. Um, you know, we must um, we had a lot of colleagues actually in those days who took risks that they shouldn't have done and they are no more. Um, and, and I think it, it's, you know, humans and animals, we have very different, uh, you know, kind of niches. And I think the, the more we respect the space of the other, the better it is for all of us. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, going back to rhinos, and I think we learned a bit after that, you know, just be be more cautious and uh, try to develop this technique as quickly as possible so that we don't need to be um, in a position where they feel threatened by us. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, but you, well, <laughs> the first memory that comes to mind is this viral video clip of a rhino that was in a pretty bad mood and was just throwing <laughs> over a, a car with people in it and just like, it attacked for like one or two full minutes and those people survived. That's, that's, I think why, why it could go, go viral. They were actually unharmed. Uh, right. but the car was a, a, a total loss. Um, right. but it, it, it also brings me to, um, to another thought of, um, we, we're just more or less getting out of the pandemic. It's actually getting worse now. Um, uh, especially in New York, I read yesterday in New York times. Um, but that is, I suppose, also typically an example of where wildlife and and humans are are coming too close together. You 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 also get an increased chance of of pandemic. So that's not an attack of a rhino, but it is extremely deadly. Some, what is it? Six million people or so have died by now mm -hmm. by yeah getting getting humans and wildlife too close together for comfort. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, so I, I think the more the more that we can respect their space, um, that the better it is uh, for all of us. Um, you know, and I, I think that you know all of us working in conservation, whether we're f focusing on non-invasive um, approaches as we are, or you know people taking more sort of conventional approaches. Um, I think we all we all want the same thing, which is for you know for the planet to be able to support humans and. Um, you know, a healthy population of wildlife. Um, and I, I think that's something else we can learn from the knowledge of indigenous people um, who've been doing that for, you know, thousands of years until very recent times when, when you know, post-industrial revolution, when we're all um, taking more than the planet can support. But bringing those groups, you know, the, mar the marginalized groups that are left, left today, very few people have that traditional ecological knowledge, but bringing them back into conservation um, and learning from them um, and, and helping them contribute to the process, I think will be incredibly valuable. Um, so we've almost gone full circle from thinking of that as being, you know, primitive technology to actually the most advanced technology that we could engage if only we can understand it.
Yeah, yeah. Where do you think the we 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 spoke quite a bit about uh, technique. Where do you, where do you think with um, you know a company like 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 Jump might develop into further? How how will it be used? Let's say if we're ten years ahead from now, what is the kind of future that you would envision if you think about conservation and and making use of new techniques are there are there new areas that need to be developed here i'm i'm, I'm sure there are but i couldn't think of any at the moment but i'm i'm sure there must be a huge demand for uh for for further development here yeah for sure i mean i i think um you know statistics kind of un underpins everything and data visualization increasingly is such a powerful tool um, you know, one of the things we would like to do to take this further is to develop our AI pipeline um, and integrate Jump inside that as a top level decision maker. Um, I think there is there is so much that can be done if we can engage public support, community support to help us collect data. Um, and, and into that, I think, comes the whole question of conservation education. Um, you know, we're all old now. I speak for myself. Um, but, um, the, you know, the younger generation, people who are in school now are going to be making these critical decisions in conservation in 20 years time, 30 years time. We need to bring them into the field now. We need to, you know, drag them out screaming and kicking with their devices and say, look, you know, we need your help. We need you to be engaged in the process because the, the survival of the planet is going to depend on you guys. Um, you know, so I would love to see that being developed more to bring kids in, to bring communities in, um, to to make best use of our technology. We're start, starting to use drones. Um, and this goes back to what you were saying about Stephen. Um, and I'd love to hear more about his work. But we, you know, we're actually finding patterns in the air that we can't see on the ground, you know, patterns of animal trails. And we should be able to use drones to identify species level at least um, and map those much more effectively than we are at the moment. Um, we have a huge team of great partners, you know, that we're working with in all sorts of different fields. And, and this, to me, kind of encapsulates where things should be in conservation biology. We as professional conservationists can't afford to ignore all the amazing expertise and energy in other fields. It has to be a kind of real community um, yeah. community um, move forward on that. Yeah, yeah, a lot of I, I'm very much with you there, especially in, including the younger generation. I see two questions coming in. Louise says that she has to leave, so she might miss the, the answer. But um, uh, she said, this is fascinating. Uh, Alexander mentioned butterflies, and it made me wonder about uh, tracking the monarch butterfly migration that goes every year up, if I'm not mistaken, from one area in Mexico all the way up to mostly, I think, the western US, if if I'm right. Um, would would that be something where uh, these technologies or a variety of it could be used, do you think? I think so. I'm not very knowledgeable about how they track monarch populations. It's possible that they do it through radar, um, you know, as they do with big bird migrations. Um, but I, I'm, I'm sure that one, one could fairly easily um, differentiate a monarch butterfly species from a different looking butterfly using AI. Um, you and I think it's yeah. probably too too big of a job for something like FIT because there are millions of butterflies, right? Um, and, yeah, and we normally deal with with species that are a little bit fewer in number. Um, but yes, I mean it is a good example of a biometric. Yeah, 
Yeah, certainly. And then there's a question from Mira um, uh, that goes in another direction. She says, are the indigenous people duly acknowledged for their contribution? I think that's a very good question. because, Well, you certainly do, of course, in, in, in your talk, because you were saying you, you would never have even gotten to the idea without talking to them. Um, but is that something that, uh, yeah, do, do, do you think they are recognized? Are they now more recognized uh, for their indigenous knowledge and their contribution than, than they would have been in the past? Do you see a development there? I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done on that front. And I, I think Mira has um, raised a very interesting point. It's one of our objectives moving forward is actually to build a platform to help engage indigenous communities more effectively. Um, one of the problems that we have when we work with these communities is that when we're out in the field, you know, we're able to engage them, we're able to employ them. But then when we go back and do our data anal analytics or we have to come back to base, um, they're basically left unsupported. Um, so we need to raise awareness of the importance of engaging them, to, to find funding for them to actually participate in this work full time. Um, and, and actually to have their input, you know, not just to collect data, but help in, interpret data. Um, yeah. Working on a project with this in Botswana at the moment, actually, um, and it's, it's one of our priorities moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds. I'm 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 fully with you there. Having having worked on on all kinds of development projects, I mean, they normally they utterly fail if you don't uh, recognize work and not only work for but also work with uh, the people involved. And yeah, I, I I very much recognize this. These are these are good points and a good question. Um, I see um, a, another question coming in. Um, uh, saying scientists and others ignore uh, the skill, experience and knowledge of indigenous people at the peril of all species, including our own. Uh, so much has been lost over decades uh, due to ego. Uh, it, it builds a bit on what on what you were just saying. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I, I suppose you, you recognize that uh, that as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's very hard to you know, if scientists don't take that on board, it's very hard to know how you can communicate it um, short of, um, you know, engaging indigenous communities and showing that it can be done, showing that it's meaningful. Um, but, you know, these are conversations that we need to have, um, not just within the conservation biology community, but within any community that is impacted by, you know, climate change or deforestation or pollution or, you know, how it's not those indigenous communities that have got us into this mess it's it's the you know so-called developed world it's kind of ironic yeah it's it's always the same story also but we do <laughs> right. a lot about climate change here and it, it's right. i mean the recurring pattern is that uh, we in the west we created the problem we are practically the only one that uh, that caused it we're right. least affected by it. We're exactly. best able to deal with it, and we are much more resilient. And then we 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 basically refuse to pay um, uh, the, uh, the the annual amount that we had promised already several years ago. I see a question from from Sharon, um, whom I would like like to take as the next caller. Hi, Sharon. Hi. Thanks for joining. Um, you're welcome. Good afternoon from Arizona. Um, Zoe, I think that it is absolutely fascinating what you're doing, and I 
am so heartened by the fact that you are validating these indigenous people. You acknowledge them, you use their knowledge, and you merge it with um, 21st century technology, and it seems to be working for you. And I think uh, just a huge kudos to that, because I live in a state um, with a lot of indigenous tribes, Native Americans, the great Navajo Nation is here, the Hopi people, and um, I've actually been on some archaeological digs just as a bystander, and what you find in their footprints is amazing, just like you said. You know, um, some of the Hohokam invented irrigation, and, and you see their footprints across time, and now they're being acknowledged. And, and uh, as a native Arizonan, I really would like to thank you for that because, you know, we would not be here without them. And my second point is um, your environmental impact study, um, Trump's border wall. It absolutely, <laughs> it absolutely, um, and I'm speaking as a layperson here, Zoe, so please um, um, just indulge me. Um, I, you know, it interrupted, as I understand it, migratory patterns of some of our endangered species in Arizona, uh, some of the mountain lions, the uh, species of deer were just found dead at the wall, just dead. There was pictures going across, you know, I think the world of that. So um, I love that you're doing envir environmental impact studies, you know, to save these endangered species. And the last thing I would like to say, and I'll be brief, is thank you so much for getting our young people involved. I direct a nonprofit uh, for young people, and I so believe in STEM education, STEAM education um, for our indigenous communities. We're trying to write grants to, um, you know, bring some of this STEM education um, out uh, to the reservations that surround the county that I work in. So thank you so much, just um, for acknowledging um, the 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 knowledge and the ancient knowledge in this and it, and it just seemed to work for you so thank you well thank you very much sharon i mean it's really it's really valuable to for us to have that sort of feedback um you know we've come from a, a, a sort of um, work setting where it's not always appreciated and and the more i talk to people who are you know out there doing the work um you know the the better i feel about the fact that we're moving in the right direction. We're actually working with a group in Nevada. We've just started working with them, and they they have said to me a lot of what you've just said now. Um, so it's it's. I think there is a groundswell of opinion to do things differently, um, and and maybe like all great changes in in science or social science, the best change will come from the ground up, not from politicians or academics. Um, so I, I applaud what you're doing. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, Sharon. And I see some other questions. Uh, if Zoe still have, has, has uh, time to stay with us, uh, I just keep you here. I just don't let you go. Um, <laughs> I'm good. I still have three quarters of my cup of tea, so I'm all right. Oh, gosh. Yeah, we let you talk so much. Um, <laughs> gives me time to drink my water that I have here. So um, I see here uh, a comment. Let me know if you want to have uh, the head of the U.S. Uh, MPS on Chuck Sam's uh, CTUIR member. Um, I don't know who this is, what is this, but I, I just see the comment. So 
um, uh, maybe you recognize it, but I, I don't. Um, I see another question from Evelyn saying, um, how can we get involved or how can we help? And I think that's interesting, especially since you talk about, you spoke about um, citizen science. And so I recognize it, for instance, in a bit of a different way. If I see a plant species that I don't know or a bird species that I don't know, I can nowadays just use an app and I either take a picture or uh, when it's a bird, I can I can register the sound and then I just send it up to some kind of database and within a second, you get an analysis of uh, what kind of bird they think it is or what kind of plant if it's a picture. And then they ask you, can can we register your day, the day and the time and the and the and the place where you found this so instead of that they just give me an answer i also give them some data so maybe that is something that you recognize here or do can you think of other ways how people can help in in developing this yeah absolutely thank you for that question evelyn um we are you know we're a small non-profit and i uh, always say yes to anybody who would like to help because I feel that everybody has something to contribute. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most obvious ways, as Alex has just said, is to is to help us by collecting footprints whenever you see them. Um, and we have uh, a new app, a brand new app, actually. It's almost out, not quite there yet. Um, I think in another two or three weeks it'll be ready, um, called Wild Track AI, and it'll be available on um, Android and Apple. Um, and it will enable anybody who's got a, a phone to go out and use their, um, their phone cameras, take pictures and just put in a little bit of data for each image they take and upload it to our wildtrack.ml um, database. Um, and it will then become part of our, um, you know, uh, database for, for helping identify endangered species. So we would love any help like that. Um, we're always looking for help with other, all sorts of other things, social media, data management, communications. Um, and I would say that if, if you're, um, you know, if you'd like to help, you've got a little bit of time, go to our website, wildtrack.org. Um, and there's a form there, contact us, where you can say what your name and email are and, and what you're interested in helping with. Um, and I will definitely get back to you and um, see if there's something we can do together. That is that is wonderful. Um, but I I didn't know about the app that is coming out. I'm really excited about it. Um, probably going to bombard you with all kinds of uh, 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 tracks <laughs> that I found, which are probably just cats and dogs because I live to live in a built neighborhood here. And um, what is what is interesting here, where I live in otherwise, where we have a lot of a lot of snow here. And oh, snow is great. We love snow. Yeah, and in the morning when there's a there's a little patio outside. So in the morning mm -hmm. when I when I open the curtain, I see the tracks of the animals that, that move through. There are squirrels and there's there's all kinds of other animals. And then the interesting thing that happens is that uh, over the days these uh, their tracks are becoming bigger because the snow is melting a bit, is melting <laughs> a bit. And then after a while when the snow is melted you get a kind of inverse pattern because mm -hmm. in the beginning it is an imprint in the snow but by mm -hmm. that imprint they they compressed the snow and it became more mm -hmm. icy mm -hmm. so when the rest of the snow is melted you mm -hmm. get these little yeah. piles of ice where you yeah. can see where where an animal has uh, jumped or run or whatever and some are really 
really, really confusing. I have no idea what kind of animal it could be. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to send you, uh, well, now briefly, we have no snow for the next few months, but uh, <laughs> starting in November, I'm going to send you snow patterns because I'm fascinated by, uh, by, uh, by what those are. If there's that anybody else who has a question, just uh, just uh, either either type them or uh, or click on uh, on the button. So for that app, we go to um, uh, in in a few weeks' time. We we go to the App Store on. Yes, it should be available phone. on Google Play and uh, the Apple Store, I, I believe. It's actually it's being developed for us by University College London. Okay. Um, and the students there are almost finished with it. It should be. It's actually been developed to work in up to 72 languages. And it's also got um, a rich use of iconography so that it can be almost language invariant. Because what one of the things we really want is to build um, indigenous communities, bring them onto this platform, um, so regardless of the languages that they speak. So um, we're using um, icons for that as well. So we're hoping it will be a useful app. I, lo I love that approach. I see Evelyn uh, has another question or comment. Hi, Evelyn. Can you hear us? You have to unmute. Yeah. Now you're muted again. There you are. Sorry, a bit too impatient, I guess. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. It's a good connection today. Excellent. Well, I'm trying something new. <gasps> anyway. Um, uh, Zoe, thank you so much for this was so interesting or still is interesting. And um, I was just wondering if you were um, active all over the world because I'm in I'm in Switzerland. So I have to look into what endangered species we have here in terms of and how I can track them and stuff like that. But are, that, that was my question. Are you active all over the world? We pretty much are. I mean, we have projects on five continents now. I don't think we've done much in Antarctica, although somebody did send us some penguin pyramids. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Switzerland, oh, I don't know. I'm sure there's tons of interesting stuff on the ground in Switzerland. And, um, you know, not lots of nice snow in the winter for those pristine prints. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, the great thing about the snow is that, you know, as, as Alex says, I mean, either it'll melt or, you know, you'll be left with something else. But every time there's fresh snow, it's like a completely fresh canvas um, you know and you can get these wonderful prints long long trails in the snow that go on forever um, you know we always say to people if you see a long trail just photograph every single footprint in the trail you know even if you're out there all day <laughs> just uh -huh. capture them all because one thing you know about a trail is it was only made by one animal um, yeah. so that so that that helps us identify characterize that one individual which is really valuable okay I also see them, by the way, in, uh, in normally in the summertime, I try to spend a bit of time on my favorite island, which is in, in the Netherlands, and I often write about, photograph about. And there you also have this clean canvas in the morning on mm. the beach and the June. Exactly. Because at night From... it's just blown over and the tourists exactly. are, whatever, partying in a cafe, but they're not out in nature. And I'm normally the first one out early in the morning in nature, and I see these fantastic footprints, yeah. of, especially of birds, uh, yeah. close to the beach, and and they are wonderful. They are so so sharp. Uh, it's it's uh, you, even if you try it in a laboratory, you would probably not get them as good as you get them in that that very fine yeah. sand early in the morning when there's no wind. 
It is amazing. And, you know, when you start working with footprints, you realize just how many different substrate types there are, right? Sand isn't just sand. I mean, there are like 500 different types of sand. Um, and and everyone, every single one has a different kind of footprint holding ability. And, of course, the light plays a part and the wind plays a part and the weight of the animal plays a part and the gait of the animal changes it. So all these variables have to be taken into account when you develop the algorithm, which makes it even more challenging. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Excellent. Thank you, Zoe. And um, I'm going to go Google penguin footprints, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck finding those in Switzerland. Those poor penguins. They must have cold feet, I guess. It's minus 40 there or something. And yeah. um, that's, a, by the way, a fascinating story I recently read about how penguins keep themselves warm. I'm completely drifting away now, but we're getting towards the end. But that uh, uh, when it gets really cold, you get like an, uh, a huge group of penguins. There are like a few hundred of them mm -hmm. and they're all in a in a circle and like a like a filled circle right. with, with a, a bowl. Mm -hmm. And of course, the ones on the outside, they they're the ones that are getting most cold. So they have a very intricate pattern in how they are walking around that each of them spends about the same time in the outer circle and then goes back in and can stay alive because of the warmth of the other ones. Mm -hmm. And it keeps permanently moving. I think nature is in so many aspects fascinating. And you were really um, showing us a lot more of the fascinating aspects of nature. A lot of things I'd never really thought about. Um, and oh, I see a last question coming in. Sorry for keeping you so long, Joey. I said we would do it 45 minutes. Uh, but I see Joshua. Hi, Joshua. Thanks for for joining us again. Yeah, I know. I actually had to make some money. Anyway, um, I, I'm the one that brought up the thing that you couldn't understand. So Chuck Sams is currently the head of the National Park Service for the United States. Okay. And he is a tribal member of the Confederated Tribes of Umatilla Indian Reservation, which is here in Pendleton, Oregon. So when I think of organizations, one, that have an indigenous leader at the top, um, that would be one. And two, them tracking and wanting to be involved in the tracking of endangered species, you know, not only with a perspective on, you know, what that is like here in our nation, but globally, he'd be somebody I would think of. So if you want some help, let me know on the back end. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if not him, then Deb Havland is the head of the Bureau of Land Management here in the United yeah. States, right? So, I mean, we have indigenous leaders that are um, occupying those positions where something like this could be really valuable and on a lot of different levels, especially from a climate change perspective and bridging a lot of gaps. I would love I'll to know more it. about that, Joshua. If you can, if you contact me with those um, with those names or emails, I'll definitely reach out to them. Sounds good. Yeah, Thank you. That's, uh, Thank that's you. Great. That's great, Joshua. And I should have recognized NPS, of course, National Park Service. I love the national parks, and I've visited many in America. Um, but there were so many abbreviations that I, <laughs> I got lost in your message. Thanks so much for clearing it up. And what a good uh, what a good suggestion and what a good policy, by the way, of the U.S. government of finally uh, uh, recognizing uh, indigenous people and giving them uh, those kind of leading management roles, uh, because that is is uh, is far overdue, of course. So it's uh, I'm very happy that yeah. uh, that is uh, that's happening now. So I, I applaud the Biden administration for uh, for having uh, taken uh, that uh, that step.
Um, Absolutely. I would yeah. say also, you know, if I just just to mention is at this point that we we also do quite a lot of work with with non-indigenous tracking communities throughout the world, people who've kind of come into it secondarily, um, and a lot of them work with indigenous tracking groups. So there's there's a whole movement of people getting really interested in tracking. Um, so I think it's you know the time is right for this revolution. Um, hopefully it'll it'll start to impact on better quality science soon. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit like being a private detective in a way. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and you you have limited information, but you have techniques to right. to give an interpretation right. and to get to right. a conclusion. So right. it's right. yeah, it's 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 an exciting search, you know. And a lot of a lot of kids nowadays do all these kind of uh, quests that they do on their video games, and they have to right. to solve some kind of mystery. And they're they're just right. looking at their screens, etc. Right. And uh, this is. Uh, Maybe maybe you should um, uh, you should team up with some kind of video game maker to to get kids to go outside. Uh, it still yes. has the technological aspect, but it finally brings them back into nature, which was one of our other podcasts where we spoke about how important it is for children yeah. uh, to spend time in nature. It really is, and they're kind of addicted to their devices. I know because I've got to, um, and it's it's really hard to separate them from their devices, but. Um, you know, if you can get them to go out and say, hey, look at the ground, the real ground, and then you can take a picture and you can put all the data on your device and then you can see it on the cloud and you can do cool stuff with it. But you first of all, you've got to look at the ground, you know, and find something. Then you're yeah. training them to be citizen scientists and they, and they can network with each other on the cloud and all that cool stuff that they love. But they are at least out there and they're looking. So those are two really, you know, yeah. big steps forward, I think. Yeah, fantastic. What a sea of possibilities is open here. And this, oh. I I really, I enjoyed so much uh, talking with you and and, uh, and learning so much about you. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about uh, the next steps uh, coming. Um, you and I will certainly stay in touch. Uh, and uh, I think once the app is out, uh, I, I hope maybe you can come back and tell us a bit more about how the app is working and we can, we can maybe compare some... Uh, uh, some data with uh, with the people that have been uh, listening today and that will li listen in the coming days once we publish this uh, this podcast. And um, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the audience for listening. Um, I'm podcasting practically every day now. This is the third day in a row. Tomorrow um, we are back as well um, uh, with Vanessa Champion. Uh, tomorrow will be about rewilding. Uh, not too far away from uh, the item we spoke about yesterday when we spoke about forest and deforestation, etc. There's kind of a linkage uh, between uh, the two of them. There's actually a linkage to what we're talking about today as well. Um, so I hope that you will join tomorrow. Tomorrow is 11 uh, a.m. on Eastern time, 11 in the morning. Um, so that is, uh, for most people in Europe, uh, that must be 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Um so is that. Thanks so much, Zoe. Any last words? Any last thoughts? No, I mean, I just thank you, Alex, for giving me the opportunity to share our work that we do at Wild Track and um, for some great questions from, from people who've joined. Um, it's always valuable, very, very valuable um, for us to get that sort of feedback. So, so thank you for that. And please do um, connect up with us on our, our website contact form if anybody's interested in, in joining us or being involved in any way and uh, we'll look forward to taking it forward wonderful i'll connect uh, by the way with you in a minute uh, over email since the the zoom call broke up okay <laughs> thanks everybody hope to see you all again tomorrow and uh, thanks for uh, joining with so many bye-bye thanks everyone